Hey friends, I hope you're all staying healthy and safe and that you're taking care of yourselves and the people and animals and plants that are important to you. The last couple of weeks have seen my family and myself going through a rough patch. A confluence of factors have led to this, most of which I can't get into out of respect for the privacy of the parties involved. I can, however, speak for myself and I will let you know that I am doing much better emotionally. There were definitely some dark days, but these last couple of weeks were far from the first time I'd encountered circumstances that drove me to a low place, and as such, I knew the things I needed to do to help myself pull out of this particular emotional nosedive. I'm fortunate to have a supportive family and friends and professionals whom I trust who have been absolutely wonderful in terms of giving me their time and assistance. Thank you to everyone who's reached out. I appreciate it, and I want you to know I am doing better. I read an outstanding book this week that I wanted to recommend. If you love rock and roll memoirs, if you love 70s and 80s new wave and punk rock, but most especially if you love talking heads, you're going to want to check out Chris France's new memoir, Remain in Love, Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club, Tina. What a book. If you know Talking Heads, then you, you might know about their coming up playing at CBGB's and all the great bands associated with that scene in the 70s and 80s. So you can just imagine all the amazing stories right there. But then there's the work they did on three amazing albums with Brian Eno. And then, of course, you've got Chris France's wife and Talking Heads bassist, Tina Weymouth, and their band, Tom Tom Club, and all the cross-pollination of Tom Tom Club uh, that they did with the hip-hop world and the production work that Tina and Chris did with all sorts of incredible musical acts over the years. The details in Chris France's book are just amazing. Yeah, I have to believe he was keeping copious journals during Talking Heads' tour with the Ramones in 1977, especially. Anyway, if any of this sounds like it may be of interest to you, do yourself a favor and check out Remain in Love, Talking Heads, Tom Tom Club, Tina, by the drummer Chris France. You won't be disappointed. And while we're on the subject of books, and regular listeners of this podcast will surely know where I'm going with this, if you've checked out the show before, you know that there are no ads and there's no Patreon for this podcast. All I've ever asked of listeners of this fine program is that if you love good fiction, or maybe you know somebody who who does, or, or maybe you just love this podcast and you want to help support it monetarily, please consider picking up one or two of my novels. There are seven currently available worldwide in paperback and ebook formats via Amazon. And if you don't use Amazon, you can find most of my books in paperback format at barnesandnoble.com. If you've already purchased any or all of my stories, thank you so, so much. I sincerely appreciate your generous patronage. And with all that out of the way, here's the quirky theme song.
Hello, People Are the Enemy listeners. This is episode 134 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Thank you so much for checking it out. I hope you're all doing well and staying staying comfortable. Uh, I know we'd had a, a lot of heat here in New England. It was pretty miserable for a time. Uh, the ACs were cranking uh, pretty consistently, but it, it finally broke the other morning. It was real nice. We opened up all the windows and, and uh, let all this nice cool air in. Went for a nice walk last night for about an hour in the uh, in in the uh, cool evening and uh, it was almost fall like which is fine with me i i love the the cooler weather that i i uh, i'm excited the first physical cop- proof copy of my upcoming eighth novel arrived in the mail last week the cover art was created by the wonderfully talented jason lambeth listeners may know jason from my conversations with him on this very podcast jason runs the wisconsin diy tape label painted blonde and he's also a musician, recording and releasing music as Red Pants. And of course, obviously, he's also an excellent artist. And if you haven't seen the cover art for my upcoming book titled Where Are You Now, Randy Dow, I encourage you to check it out on my personal Twitter and Facebook and Instagram profiles. I posted a photo of the proof copy of the book there, and if you like what you see, and uh, you're in the market to have some commissioned artwork made, I encourage you to reach out to Jason Lambeth. He's very easy to work with, and he's very fair, and he's obviously exceptionally talented. Uh, So since I'm literally holding the first paperback proof copy of my forthcoming novel, Where Are You Now, Randy Dow, in my hands, uh, I figured this would be a good opportunity to read you the first pages of the story. I thought that would be a a fun thing to do on this episode. I like to do this. uh, I've done it for the past couple of books um, where I've, you know, obviously used this platform and and the fact that uh, I have this podcast to help promote uh, the work I do creatively. And uh, I thought this would be a good time, again, since I have the first proof copy, to, uh, to read you the first pages of my upcoming novel, Where Are You Now? Randy Dow. Um, and uh, it should be available soon. And if you follow me on social media, you'll be the first to know when it uh, when it's available. And uh, and I hope you do. So, uh, I'm going to read uh, the first pages of Where Are You Now, Randy Dow? By myself, Andy Mascola. And the first chapter is called The Coyote Incident. It was the sound of howling that woke me. We had one dog, Goldie, and I knew her bark well. She was a Pomeranian. Her bark was generally high and short. What I heard that morning were long, protracted howls. Our dog only ever made any extended howling noises when someone accidentally tripped over her on the way to the bathroom early in the morning or in the middle of the night. The braying howls I heard on that particular morning didn't belong to Goldie. Those howls came from something else. Something wild. At first, I tried to roll over and ignore the noises, pulling the thick comforter over my head. It was approaching late summer, and the need for an air conditioner in my tiny upstairs bedroom was becoming less frequent. The temperature of the evening before had been comfortable enough for me to fall asleep with only the window open. That morning, however, as I hid my head under the thick blanket to muffle the sounds from outside, the heat soon became too much. I never slept under a sheet, you know, like the kind you tuck in. Our mother had only ever outfitted our beds with thick, heavy comforters. Even when we went away as a family, whether we were staying with relatives or in a hotel, the first thing she'd do was remove the sheets from the beds so that my sister and I would only have a single blanket to sleep under. 
thus replicating what we were used to at home. I knew the way our beds were kept wasn't typical. I mean, I watched television. Heck, most cartoon characters slept under a sheet, albeit one that was usually too short and would drift skyward at the insistence of air expelled by the character laying under it. The first time my best friend, Emma, stayed over, she complained that she couldn't fall asleep because she was used to having her feet pinched by the tucked-in sheet at the bottom of the mattress. Anyway, where was I? Oh yeah, the early morning howling. It wouldn't stop. And I was too tired to get out of bed and shut the window, and it was too hot under the comforter. Frustrated, I pushed the blankets off my body and rubbed at my forehead and eyes with the backs of my arms. Sliding out of bed, I walked barefoot across my tiny room, carefully avoiding bric-a-brac on the carpet. This bric-a-brac included socks, Goldie's chew toys, stuffed animals of a variety of sizes, handheld electronic games, keychains, plastic jewelry, books, markers, scissors, construction paper, crayons, Pokemon cards, lip balm, combs, hair ties, hair clips, comic books, and more. I made my way downstairs. I knew it was early, but I didn't know exactly what time it was because my mother had me unplug the Disney Princess clock in my bedroom to plug in the air conditioner. And I never bothered to plug my clock in somewhere else because it was summer and I was out of school anyway. The sun was just starting to come up. It was too early for an 11-year-old to be awake on one of the last Saturdays of summer vacation. A summer vacation that had been a complete dud since the fighting between my mother and my sister, Diane, had gotten so bad she decided to move out the first weekend after my last day of school. And who could blame Diane? Between mom and dad fighting and their subsequent separation and divorce, and mom arguing with my sister, there hadn't been peace in our house in a long time. Things were only now, two months later, just starting to get better between Diane and Mom. So there I was, walking down the stairs in my pajamas, which on that day consisted of a matching t-shirt and shorts, white with a polka dot pattern, each dot either red or orange or blue or green or yellow or purple. I'm almost sure that's what I was wearing. It was either that or a gray shorts and t-shirt combination, the one with I'm the little sister printed across the front in big pink letters. Upon entering the living room, I saw my mother standing in front of the sliding glass door that looked out onto our backyard. She was wearing one of my father's t-shirts and nothing else. It was the one he'd picked up from the Nickelback concert he'd attended in 2000 and never. For whatever reason, he hadn't taken it with him when he moved out, and, because she never liked to throw anything away, Mom had begun using Dad's concert souvenir as sleepwear. Her weight loss had started right after he left. I'd never remembered her being as thin as she was now. I'd seen a few photos from her younger days once when I was helping my dad clean out his closet, but since giving birth to Diane and me, then spending our infant and toddler years being a housewife and raising us, Mom's voluntary stagnation had contributed to a suburban softness, a comfortable place to lean into as a kid and be swallowed up by when affection was required. After Dad left, she'd begun to eat less and walk more. Mom had joined a group of neighborhood women who paraded around our block every weekday morning. This was strange, if only because when the group was first spotted, Mom had poo-pooed it. Why would anyone want to be a part of that? she asked rhetorically. Dad laughed along with her, pointing out the group of women walkers whenever they'd pass our house. Thinking back on it now, perhaps it was his absence that prompted Mom to join the walkers, if only to spite his mockery and find some solidarity and fellowship within the group. 
The Working Moms Walking Club, or WMWC as the women referred to themselves, was made up entirely of ladies from our neighborhood. They were all around mom's age, mostly married mothers, some with full or part-time jobs, looking for an excuse to get out of the house and gossip with the added benefit of getting exercise. Some me-time before the homemakers had to return to their places of residence, wake their families, and then do whatever it was they did for the rest of the day. But there was no working mom's walking club that day. It was a Saturday, and there my mother stood in front of the sliding glass door, a cigarette between her fingers as she stared at something wild, howling at the far end of the backyard. As far as I knew, she'd never been a smoker, which made the cigarette unusual. She flicked at the filter with her thumb. I watched as ashes floated gently onto the rug next to her bare feet like tiny snowflakes. The smell of the burning tobacco wasn't unpleasant. It reminded me of walking into and out of restaurants downtown, past smokers standing just outside the entrance, puffing away. I'd always had a happy association with smoking because of those times we'd go out to eat as a family to meet up with friends or relatives at a restaurant. The other association I'd come to make with the smell of burning tobacco was from people loitering outside our public library. Again, this was a happy association. I loved the library. My sister and I both loved to read. And whenever my mother brought us to the library, I always came home with a tote bag full of wonderful stories to take home and pour over. I'd breathe in deeply as Mom escorted Diane and I briskly past the smokers. She'd be holding tightly to our hands as society's misfits shuffled around, grumbling to themselves or one another, some laying on the grass in the nearby field, a couple of them sitting on a bench made of stone, one always circling on a bicycle for some reason, an unlit butt dangling from between chapped lips under an unkempt mustache. For a long moment I just stood there in the living room, breathing in the scent of a newly lit cigarette staring at my mother's back with the tour dates printed in black on my father's old concert shirt that she now wore as pajamas, the oversized garment completely covering the top half of her newly thin body, ending just below her shrunken behind. The sliding glass door my mother was staring through was closed, but I could still hear howling through the open window by the couch. She took a drag off the butt and exhaled smoke directly onto the glass in front of her. It was in the smoky reflection that I saw her face clearly for the first time that morning. Her pupils were tiny, and she was staring at something at the far end of the lawn near the woods. As the exhaled smoke dissipated, I focused on whatever was beyond the glass door. That's when I saw them. My first concern was for Goldie. Anything wild, big or small, would most certainly raise the hackles of any Pomeranian. But the two creatures in our backyard, although still at the farthest corner, were not cats, or rabbits, or squirrels, or chipmunks, or any of the usual kind of species of animal that would regularly pass through this time of year, and Goldie was nowhere to be seen. At first glance, they appeared to be collarless dogs. The two canine-like animals suddenly stopped howling and began jumping around each other. The larger of the two mounted the smaller and began humping. Even if I didn't understand the purpose of it at the time, I knew what they were doing was called humping. This was because more than once, male dogs had attempted this with Goldie at the dog park. As soon as the humping between the two animals in our backyard began, Mom went into action. Mom, I said, but at the exact time I spoke, she unlocked the door with a loud click of the lock and my voice was obscured by the sound. She slid the door completely open, stepped outside and flicked the still-lit cigarette into the grass. Without taking her eyes off the two animals, she walked over to the side of the house and turned on the water spigot connected to the garden hose. 
She pulled the hose off the tire rim, nailed to the side of the house, and walked boldly toward the creatures near the edge of the woods. She didn't get more than fifty feet away from the animals before the larger of the two dismounted and ran. The smaller followed. She sprayed in the direction of the animals, holding her thumb over the end of the hose's nozzle. She stood in the yard for a while, with one hand on her hip and the other on the hose, residual water rolling down her knuckles and steadily dripping onto the lawn. Without Mom seeing, I walked over to the lit cigarette in the grass and picked it up. It was warm in my fingers. I put it between my lips, sucked on the still moist end, and blew smoke out of my mouth. I'd never held or tasted a cigarette. It was lighter than I'd expected it to be, and it didn't taste like it smelled. It tasted more like the black, charred portion of a marshmallow after it's caught fire, and less like the way I thought it would taste, rich and savory, like a hamburger. Mom turned and walked back toward the house. She shut the water off and wrapped the hose around the metal rim. I held the filter of the cigarette and tapped the orange ember with the pointer finger of my free hand. The pain was sharp and angry. It left a dark, gray spot on my fingertip, and I immediately dropped the butt back into the grass just as my mother passed. I rubbed my singed fingertip on my pajama top, stood, and followed her inside. She opened the refrigerator and took out a half gallon of orange juice in a plastic bottle, popping the cap off with her thumb. The cap landed on the linoleum floor and rolled until it hit Goldie's food bowl. Mom tipped back the juice and drank from the bottle. I watched as the last of it disappeared from the container, a couple drops sliding from the corners of her mouth and down her chin. What were those? I asked. Mom, still drinking, looked at me. She choked and turned, coughing into the sink. <laughs> Coyotes, she said between hacks. What were they doing? I asked. My mother turned on the water in the sink and held the empty bottle under the tap, filling it a third of the way before turning it over and letting the water run completely out. What were the coyotes doing? I asked again. She shut the water off, shook out the empty orange juice bottle, and dropped it into a large white trash bag that hung from the pantry doorknob. I don't know, she mumbled. She walked out of the kitchen, down the hall, and up the steps. Her legs were pale and lithe. I watched as she ascended the carpeted staircase. The heels of her bare feet were dark from the dirt in the yard, and there were pieces of cut grass stuck to her ankles. I heard the bathroom door close, and soon after, the shower was turned on. Sounds of whimpering and scratching were coming from behind the closed door to the downstairs bathroom. Around that time, it wasn't unusual for Mom to overlook things. I was thankful she'd had the foresight to keep Goldie safe during the coyote incident. I opened the bathroom door, and our small, brownish-yellow Pomeranian came doddering out. She was an older dog. We got her my first Christmas, the same year Diane turned eight. As if Goldie knew she'd missed something exciting, she walked over to the sliding glass door, her curly tail wagging. After not seeing anything of interest, she made her way over to the front door where her leash hung. She turned and looked up at me anticipatingly. The sound of a text notification from Mom's phone on the kitchen counter startled me. I walked over and looked at the screen. It was my sister. All I saw was one word. What? Followed quickly by another. Today? And then... What time? I pulled the foldable step stool out from between the refrigerator and counter, unfolded it, and placed it in front of the cabinets. I stepped onto it, opened one of the wooden doors, and took a white bowl out. Stepping off, I next went to the pantry to look for cereal. I pulled the Cheerios out and found a half gallon of milk in the fridge. As I was preparing breakfast for myself, my mother's phone began to ring. I looked over 
and saw it was my sister again, this time calling, most likely because nobody had responded to her texts. I shouted up to my mother from the bottom of the stairs, but got no response. The shower was still running. I walked back into the kitchen and picked up my mother's phone, sliding the bar across the face of the glass. Hey, I said. Hey, my sister said. Just from that one word, I could tell she was irritated. I was surprised I even got a hey from her before she asked. Is mom there? She's in the shower. Do you know what she's doing today? You mean jumping? Yeah, Diane said. Yeah. Why didn't she tell me? My sister asked. I didn't have an answer. Tell her to call me. Okay, I said. Namaste, Diane said. Aloha. Aloha means hello, my sister said. Aloha means hello and goodbye, I said. Diane hung up. Normally I'd just take Goldie out back to poo and pee. Our backyard bordered some woods and it was, sur and it was surrounded by enough trees to give us a significant amount of privacy. Considering the coyote incident, however, I figured it would be safer for both Goldie and me if I took her into the front yard. I walked upstairs and into my bedroom. I could still taste the cigarette. The inside of my mouth tasted as if I'd been eating spoonfuls of incinerated charcoal briquettes. How did anyone find smoking pleasurable? I disrobed and pulled on a pair of blue running shorts and a black tank top that had the word meow embroidered in tiny plastic rhinestones on the front. Below the word was a cat's face also embroidered and glued on stones. I stabbed my feet into a pair of pink flip-flops and walked back downstairs. I pulled a brown plastic supermarket bag from a wad of balled-up bags stuffed into the corner of the hall closet. Then I took Goldie's leash off the wall, connected it to her collar, and opened the front door. The shower in the upstairs bathroom was still running. I'm walking the dog, I yelled. Goldie was pacing back and forth. She used to yip and jump like crazy when she had to go, but, like I said, she was older, and the most she did in those days was walk around nervously in a circle. Outside, Goldie led the way, sniffing just about every square inch of the ground as we walked. Our neighbors passed with their four dogs. The two men looked alike, except one was fat and one was thin. They never waved back. The fat one's t-shirts and shorts were always too tight, as if he shared the thinner one's wardrobe. They were both clean-shaven and had the same haircut and sunglasses. I assumed they were brothers and once even said so. Mom and Dad laughed at this suggestion. I still don't know why they thought this was so funny. On hot days, the thin one would wear a pair of tiny shorts and no shirt. Dad referred to him as Topless McGee. As the men passed with their pets, only one of the four dogs stopped and barked at Goldie. It was immediately tugged back in line with the others. Goldie stopped and stared briefly before snuffling and going back to trying to find a place to go to the bathroom. Come on, Goldie, I said. I had to pee. Just pick a place. She finally went, and I picked up her mess using the supermarket bag as a glove, turning it inside out around my hand. When I'd first begun taking Goldie out in the morning, I was completely grossed out by her poo. I couldn't understand why it was warm. It's because it just came from inside her body, my sister explained. Don't you think your insides are warm like that? I pictured my insides like a cave with fiery lava bubbling up all over, running down the walls of my stomach. I suppose my poop was warm, but I'd never dare to find out. I tied up the bag of excrement and dropped it into one of the metal trash cans at the side of the house. I closed the door behind us, unlatched Goldie's leash, and hung it back on the hook. 
I used the toilet in the downstairs bathroom, making sure the shower wasn't still running before I flushed. I walked upstairs. Goldie followed. The bathroom door was wide open. Steam poured into the hall. Mom was drying herself. All modesty had left with my father. This was now an all-woman household, including the dog. I watched her run the towel over her soft, slightly sagging belly and hips before drying her wavy, chin-length brown locks. Diane called, I said. Where's my phone? Downstairs. Can you please bring it up to me? I sighed and went and got the phone and brought it back upstairs, handing it to her. She took it from me and continued to dry her hair as she walked down the hall and into the master bedroom, leaving the door open. On her dresser was a clock radio. She turned it on and wild jazz filled the room. This was new. Mom never cared about music. She was one of those people. She opened the top drawer and pulled out a plastic package, tore it open with her teeth, and shook out a pair of purple panties. She pulled them over her feet and up around her hips. When she turned around, I could see her butt cheeks. She looked at herself in the long mirror on the closet door. I think you have those on backward, I said loud enough for her to hear me over the wailing brass instruments and percussion. She stopped and turned. Go do your hair, she shouted. The jazz was turned down, and I could hear my mother on the phone with Diane. As I dragged a comb roughly through my unwashed locks, I listened to their conversation. Of course I want you there, she said. Well, if you read my email... Mom sounded annoyed. Potter's Field, she said. Potter's Field, she repeated, this time more slowly. Diane, I really don't have time for this right now. Look, if you just check your email, all the details... Pause. I don't know. Wednesday? Okay, well, whatever, Diane. I don't care either way. Another pause. Wheels up at eight. Pause. It means the plane leaves the ground at eight, which means I'll most likely be back on the ground at nine. No, I don't have a death wish, Diane. Diane, I don't... Pause. It's a tandem jump. Pause. Yes, that means I'll be with an instructor. They don't let you jump alone your first time. Okay, look, I have to go. I'll talk to you later. I love you too. I heard her descending the stairs. There was a moment of silence before she shouted, Are you ready? I balanced the comb on the edge of the sink and turned the water on. Just brushing my teeth, I yelled. I finished and ran downstairs. Goldie followed. Mom was standing in the living room with a small purse over her shoulder. She wore a gray t-shirt tucked into tight blue jeans and a black leather jacket. I'd never seen the jacket before. It stopped a couple inches above her waist and had tassels hanging off the arms. I wanted to try on that leather jacket so bad. In one swift move, she swung open the front door and pulled a pair of aviator-style sunglasses from the collar of her shirt. I descended the cement steps. Mom unlocked the doors to her white SUV with the keychain fob, and I climbed onto the front passenger seat and buckled myself in. As soon as we reached the highway, Mom put all the windows down and opened the sunroof. She turned on loud rock music and began howling as she pumped her fist through the open top. Joining the fun, I screamed and put my hands in the air. It normally took about 45 minutes to drive to Potter's Field. Mom made it in about 30. She parked, and we both got out of the car. There she is! A tough-looking, heavy-set woman with a crew-cut said as Mom walked around the front of our car and high-fived the androgyne. This your kid? Mom turned around and looked at me as if she'd forgot I was with her. Cassandra, this is Angie, Mom said, pointing at the big woman. 
Hey, the lady with the crew cut said. Oh, this here's Maggie, Angie said, turning and pointing to a younger, more feminine-looking woman who was walking up behind her. Maggie, this is Sarah and her daughter. Maggie was wearing a summer dress and carrying a backpack. Her hair was parted in the middle and came down in two braids that rested on her shoulders. Hi, Maggie said as she smiled and waved at Mom and me. Okay, you see where that painted bullseye is? Angie asked Maggie as we were all walking out of the parking lot toward the field. That's where we're supposed to land, she said, laughing. Okay, so if you want to wait for me over there and just do your best to get a shot of me coming down, that'd be awesome. Won't they be filming you? Maggie asked. Angie was silent for a long moment and stared at her friend, expressionless. Yeah, but I don't trust them. Plus, they already told us they're going to charge us for a copy of our jump. Just do the best you can. Okay, Maggie said. I'll see you when you land, I guess. Good luck. Don't say good luck, Angie said, laughing. What do you say? Maggie asked, smiling nervously and looking from Angie to Mom and back again. The three women were quiet for a moment. Have fun, Mom suggested. Okay, yeah, have fun, Angie said, laughing and looking from Mom to me to Maggie. See, we parachutists know how to communicate, she said, laughing hard. I couldn't speak for Mom's parachute pal, Angie, but my mother didn't seem nervous at all. If she was, she didn't show it. Hey, a man hollered from the far end of the parking lot. Hey, Angie yelled, waving at the man. We all looked over. A guy who appeared to be slightly younger than my mother was waving back. Another parachute pal, I assumed. There was a boy with him carrying a backpack. It's a good day to die, the man shouted. The three women laughed. Angie laughed a little longer than Mom and Maggie. We turned and walked toward the man and his son. You know, it's really the perfect day to do this, he said as we approached. Yeah, I was just saying to her, Angie said as she pointed to Maggie. It's not windy at all. I mean, it's an ideal day for jumping. I assume that's our bullseye, the man said, pointing to the field. Yep, I'd say that's most likely it, Angie said. Just then, a group of jumpers walked by, heading to a hangar, where parachutes were laid out next to a small plane. That's Instructor Dave, Angie said, pointing to a man with a mustache and a blue jumpsuit who was walking along with the students. See, that's our instructor, Angie said to Maggie. All right, we better go join our group. Mom walked up close to me, reached into her back pocket, and slid her phone out. Here, she said, handing me the device. I'm sure they don't want us jumping with these things. Do you want me to film you? I asked. Sure, Mom said, shrugging, as if capturing the moment on camera was something which hadn't occurred to her until that moment. If jumping out of a plane wasn't all about bragging to people that Mom had done something really cool, then what was it all about? Can you unlock it for me? I asked. She took the phone, quickly tapped on the screen a few times, and handed it back. Have fun, I called out to her. That's right, Angie said, turning and pointing to me while looking at Maggie. See? Even a little one knows. I smiled. Maggie smiled too, but it looked more like she was in pain. Mom gave me a nod and walked with her parachute pals over to where their classmates were. The boy with the backpack and I followed Maggie over to a group of about 25 or so other onlookers. Some of them had cameras, some had brought beach chairs and blankets, and some even had drinks and coolers. I looked around for my sister but didn't see her. Everyone at the landing area appeared to know someone else. Maggie was talking with two masculine-looking women whom I assumed must have been friends of she and Angie. I looked over at the boy. He didn't appear to know anybody there either. Was that your dad? I asked him. Yeah, 
he said, looking around and not making eye contact with me. After a moment of awkward silence, he asked, Was that your mom? Yeah, I said. Has she ever jumped out of a plane before? I don't think so. What about your dad? He shook his head. Do you think they'll be okay? I asked. The boy shrugged. Just then, the group of people we were standing amongst began to holler and clap. I turned to see Mom's parachuting class walk out of the hangar. They were all wearing red jumpsuits and white helmets and goggles. When Mom walked out, I waved wildly. She waved back and got on the small plane with her classmates. For every red-suited jumper, there was a tandem jumper in a blue jumpsuit. The plane propeller started, and we watched as it taxied the field before taking off. You ever been in a plane before? I asked the boy. Not like that one, he said. I was in a big plane once, when I was really little, when I went to Florida. I'd never been in a plane, but I had been to Florida. We went two summers ago. Dad insisted we drive. It was a long trip. Mom and Dad argued constantly. When we got down into Georgia, it was hot. The air conditioning in the car wasn't working, and we were all sweaty and miserable. Dad complained that Mom hadn't taken the car in for a pre-trip inspection and blamed her for the air conditioning issue. Mom blamed it on the fact that the car was old and that Dad was too cheap to buy plane tickets for the four of us. At one point, he yelled at her and she cried. That trip was the first time I'd heard Mom tell Dad she hated him. She literally said it right in front of us. I hate you. Soon, Diane and I began shouting back and forth at each other. Then our parents turned on us and forgot about arguing between themselves. Thinking back, I wonder if we did it intentionally, Diane and me. Did we fight just to pull the attention away from Mom and Dad being angry with each other? It seemed like when we got back from that vacation, things began to get worse between them. That fall, when Diane announced she wanted to work instead of going to school full-time, our parents bickering again turned away from one another and was focused instead on my sister. Over that fall and winter, the incidents of arguing and unpleasantness between the two kicked up again, to the point where Dad started threatening that he was going to leave. They were separated by spring. After he left, Mom started losing weight and joined the aforementioned Working Mom's Walking Club. Soon after that, she began wearing tighter-fitting clothes and bought a brand new couch and a matching Lazy Boy, even though we didn't need either. Cassandra! I heard someone yell. Hey! My sister said as she came up from behind me, putting one hand on my shoulder. She was out of breath. Hey! I said. Diane was wearing blue jeans and a tucked-in black t-shirt that had the words eat, sleep, game under icons that look like the ones you see on highway signs for gas, food, lodging. I'd seen the shirt before on one of my sister's ex-boyfriends, a guy our mother couldn't stand. Over the shirt, Diane wore an unzipped gray hoodie. Her hair was pulled back in a ponytail, and she was sporting a beat-up blue baseball cap that looked like it belonged to a careless boy. What did I miss? Diane asked. Here they come! A woman in the crowd exclaimed excitedly. I shaded my eyes with my hand and looked to the sky. I see them, Diane said. I pointed Mom's phone toward the plane. Is that yours? My sister asked, referring to the phone. Mom's, I said. I was going to say, it looks just like Mom's. I still don't have one. Wasn't Dad going to get you one? Yeah, that was before he moved out. When I last tried to bring it up, he said the phone plan he has with Mom is still up in the air. Up in the air, Diane repeated, smiling and looking at me. I rolled my eyes. No, but seriously, that sucks, she said. Yeah, it does, I said. I'm going to be the only kid in my school without a phone next year. I just know it. You won't be the only one, Diane said. Listen, maybe I can help you. I'll talk to Mom about it. 
Worst comes to worst, I can get you on my plan. I've been off mom and dad since I left. Kicking me off their plan was like the first thing they did. It was supposed to be a punishment or something. I turned away from Diane and pointed mom's phone toward the plane as we began to see one by one red bodies in the air. There was an instructor on each jumper's back. There were also a few parachutists in orange jumpsuits with cameras. Their job was to get footage of all the jumpers for a video package that the skydiving company would try to sell the students. One by one, the parachutes began to open. Which one's mom? Diane asked. I don't know, I said. What color jumpsuit was she wearing? Red, I said, but all the jumpers are wearing red. I looked over at Diane. She was filming the jumpers with her phone. One by one, as the students landed, I zoomed in on them. Upon touching the ground, the instructors and their students slid to a sitting position and detached themselves almost immediately. I think that's her, I said. Where? Diane asked. That one there, I said, pointing. Oh yeah, I see her. I admit, it was exciting. I mean, it's not every day you see someone you know falling from the sky. I still couldn't understand what made her want to do this, but it was cool. I zoomed in as close as her phone would allow. It was hard to tell if she was having fun. We were standing in an area cordoned off with red ribbon tied to posts. I'm sure it was in the skydiving company's best monetary interest to make sure their camera people got the best footage. There were even employees on the ground with cameras, filming each jumper as they landed, asking them questions as if they were celebrities coming out of a restaurant. Mom and her instructor landed, and she slid to a stop at the outermost ring of the bullseye. Miraculously, she, standed, she stayed on her feet. The cameraman got right up in her face, blocking us from seeing her expression. I couldn't make out what he was asking her or what her answers were. After Mom's instructor unhooked himself, she started whooping like a madwoman. This was not at all typical behavior for our mother. I looked over at Diane. Her eyes were wide, and she was covering her mouth with her free hand. The two of us started laughing. After our mother detached her chute, she waved to us and went to the hangar to get changed. We met up with her on the field and walked with her back to the car. What was it like? I asked. It was exhilarating, she said. Would you do it again? Diane asked. Oh, in a second, yes. Can we get ice cream? I asked. Yes, we can get ice cream, Mom said. And I'll stop there. Uh, I hope you dug that. That's, uh, again, the first pages of my forthcoming novel titled, Where Are You Now, Randy Dow? Um, and uh, I hope you'll be there when it comes out to help me uh, promote it on social media. And I, if you like what you heard, I hope you, I hope you purchase it. Um, again, it'll be available in paperback and ebook formats. Thank you, thank you so much for for uh, for giving me your time and listening to uh, to the first pages of that story. I'm very proud of it. This has been episode 134 of the People Are the Enemy podcast. Our theme song is Walrus Love by Nokia Ocean. You can find that song and more at pizzapuppies.bandcamp.com. My name is Andy Mascola. You can purchase my novels via Amazon and other online book retailers in both paperback and ebook formats for as little as $1.99. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. We love you. Peace. <laughs>